Welcome to Mighty Buildings Podcast. Each episode features architects, home builders, and industry professionals sharing their experiences, failures, and successes. At the end of each episode, we'll dive into how Mighty Buildings relates to the conversation through our use of 3D printing, robotics, and automation. I'm Sam Rubin, Chief Sustainability Officer and one of the four co-founders here at Mighty Buildings. Today is my distinct pleasure to welcome Daryl Fairweather, Chief Economist for Redfin. Thank you. Looking forward to this conversation. Well, so I guess to start, you've got a, I mean, I was an econ undergrad, so the idea of being a chief economist sounds kind of amazing. Like, what what does that actually mean, particularly somewhere like Redfin that's doing so much amazing work in the real estate space? It's my job to lead research into the housing market. We do this for our customers so that our customers can be more knowledgeable about what's going on in the housing market. I also advise the executives at Redfin and also Redfin agents so that when they are out in the field working with clients, they can be really knowledgeable about what's going on in the housing market. Very cool. Um, so I be, I'm kind of curious. One of the things we, we love talking about on, on our podcast is, is people's journeys. And so I'm kind of curious, how how did you end up uh, in, in such an amazing role? <laughs> and where do I begin? Uh, well, I did my undergrad at MIT. And while I was at MIT, it was the start of the last housing crisis. Mm -hmm. Around 2009, I took a research assistantship at the Federal Reserve at Boston, and I was doing research into why people entered into foreclosure. I would literally call people who were on the brink of foreclosure and have them do a survey asking them all these questions about their mortgage, about their income, their family history, whether they had a health emergency. Also ask them some behavioral questions like, would you trade off having $1,000 today for $1,100 a year from now, things like that. And mm -hmm. throughout all that research, basically what we found is that People just didn't anticipate or didn't even think it would be possible for home prices to go down. That led me into the field of behavioral economics. I got my PhD at University of Chicago and studied with Richard Thaler, who's like the father of behavioral awesome. economics, um, and learned all about the reasons people can make poor economic decisions. Wait, I, you say homo economicus isn't real? Yeah, no, not quite. Uh, it, it seems pretty obvious, right? Like I don't make perfect decisions, even though I know all this economics. So it's hard to imagine that regular people are always behaving optimally. And, and oftentimes they don't. Even when buying a home, which is the biggest mm -hmm. financial decision that most people will make, people make mistakes because they aren't familiar with the process. So anyway, I uh, got my PhD from the University of Chicago. I ended up uh, working for Amazon as an economist and then as a senior economist working on issues related to employee engagement. So again, it was on the behavioral economic side, like how to get workers mm -hmm. to be happier and hopefully more productive. And then Redfin came along with this offer for chief economist. And it was so exciting because it combines my background in housing and also my background in behavioral economics. And I've been in this role for over three years now. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I remember getting exposed to behavioral economics in undergrad and just being like, why aren't all economists like this? This makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm, I'm on the same page. Yeah. From your perspective, what's what's kind of something that you've learned that you think most people that should know, I guess, uh, out, out, like from your perspective as a, as a housing economist? I think when it comes to buying a home, people get really fixated on winning, especially in a competitive housing market like we have right now, where you might be up against other offers in a bidding war. And 
it can mess with people's heads, especially if you've lost out on bidding war after bidding war, you might go into your next bidding war with an offer that may be too high for what you can really afford. But it's also really difficult to even know what the right decision is because home prices have been going up since 2012. So if you miss out on buying a home today, it might not be the best for you if you do want to be a homeowner long term. So I think it's really hard for people to weigh all these different um, short term and long term benefits and costs if people don't really have a clear vision of what they want for their future, which is even hard enough. Like they say that you shouldn't buy a home unless you think you're going to be in it for at least five years, because that's how long it takes to um, gain some equity and get some wealth out of it. But it's hard to know where you're going to be in five years and think that far into the future. So, so one of the things that uh, we often should talk about on the podcast is some of the like moments during your career when something went wrong or it felt like a failure or maybe a particular challenge. And, but in retrospect may have ended up actually being the thing that set you on, on a new path that got you to where you are. Um, kind of this idea that the opposite, the flip side of every challenge is an opportunity. And so, so curious where in your career that, that may have, uh, have shown up for you. Well, my first job out of grad school, before I even got to Amazon, I was doing consulting and it really wasn't a good fit for me. I didn't like the deadlines. It was just a very detail-oriented job because a lot of our clients were lawyers who are very detail-oriented. And it felt like I just wasn't able to kind of hang with that kind of job. But in retrospect, it really just wasn't the right job for me. I have really thrived since moving more into tech. I think that mm-hmm. the just the personality of people who work in tech fits better with my personality. And I'm glad that I didn't fit in in the consulting world because I don't think I would have been happy in that world long-term. Gotcha. No, that's, I mean, I think that's, that's a great, great point. It's kind of the, the idea that it's not necessarily you, that it's, it yeah. really is about finding that right fit. Or it's okay if it is you, it just means that you might fit better but, somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. And kind of, to me, this kind of, the, the whole idea of like this, I mean, I mean, and then that feeds in the idea that as that we're, we're kind of trained by society to expect that we should not like our job, but it sounds like for, for you, and that's this is something I've experienced as well is like when that's been the case, I, that I've realized in retrospect, oh, that no, that means I'm in the wrong job. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that and yeah, and finding that purpose. Yeah, you remember learning a, a term in philosophy for that? It's acting in bad faith. If you stick in a bad situation, you're acting in bad faith because you aren't considering all of the other opportunities that you might be better off in. Just because it's scary to take an opportunity, like you don't know what the unknown is going to be like. So. I think every time I've kind of taken a risk and gone for something that where I don't know 100% what it's going to be like, it's turned out well. And if it doesn't turn out well, then you can just go do something else. Right. I and mean, it's about understanding what is the opportunity cost of staying versus going. Definitely. And again, if it's your, if you're, if it's your well-being. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And if it's your well-being, well, that's a pretty high cost. For, Definitely. For, to, yeah. So, and that's, that's something that. I've had to learn the hard, hard way myself. So it's uh, definitely glad to hear that's not just me, but I'm also glad for your sake and for Redfin's sake that you uh, figured that out pretty early. I know most of our listeners are probably very familiar with Redfin, but for those who aren't, what do you, what do you guys do? We call ourselves a tech-powered real estate brokerage. Most people are familiar with Redfin.com. It's where you can go and look at all the homes for sale, see all the listing photos, learn about everything that has to do with the home. We also have an entire real estate brokerage, though. If you go on Redfin.com and you click on tour a home, you will be connected with a Redfin agent who can help you through the home buying process. And if you want to sell a home, 
we have agents to help you sell as well. We have some other businesses. We have a mortgage business and a title business. And we also are an iBuyer. If anybody's been paying attention to the iBuyer news, <laughs> um, you probably may, you may or may not know what iBuying is, but that just means that we buy homes, actually hold them. We own them for a short amount of time and sell them again. Gotcha. So yeah, kind of, well, obviously yeah, one of your competitors has been in the news uh, recently <laughs> around that. Um, Gotcha. And so you got, you've also been working on some like tools and other things for, for, for your customers. Yeah. Am I, am I remembering that correctly? Yes. So if you go on the Redfin site, you can see so many things about the home. But we also have a lot of extra information that you might not see on other websites. We have data from Climate Check and First Street Foundation on the climate risk for neighborhoods and homes. We have data from uh, walk score, transit score, and uh, bike score. So you can see how walkable and how much transit there is around the home that you are interested in. And we also have like modules to help you calculate the affordability of the home, like how much your mortgage would be, how much your taxes and your HOA fees would all add up to in a monthly mortgage payment. Awesome. I think because obviously chief sustainability officer, sustainability and climate change and climate crisis, very important to me. I'm curious, what have you seen in terms of the uptake on people actually using that the climate risk calculator? Because I mean, for me, I know whenever I'm thinking about property, I that's something I look look at because I want to make sure that it's going to end up being a good long term investment um, and not just something that I might be able to keep for 20 years before a hurricane wipes it away or something. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the exact numbers. I think it was around one in ten people in some of the areas with the highest flood risk, like Houston. Um, Florida, Louisiana, were engaging with the flood data. It's still very early days for us in terms of having that data available. So we're still kind of tweaking what uh, climate information we're going to show and try to bring it even more to the attention of people on Redfin. And and is that something you see in the broader industry, kind of more and more awareness and, and kind of paying attention to what's happening with climate in terms of its impact on housing? We, especially in areas of high climate risk, like the Central Valley of California or on the East Coast that was hit with hurricanes, our clients are asking about climate risk. And in some places, they it's really important. In, in Napa Valley, for example, sellers are now required to disclose the fire risk for the area. And if you're buying a home in Napa, it's been hit with fires time and time again. It is something that home buyers are concerned about. They want to know how much their insurance premiums will be, um, what the risk is of fire again. So I think increasingly people are paying attention to it because more people themselves have just experienced a climate disaster. Yeah. I mean, obviously being here in California, well, and, and even you guys up in Washington with the heat dome and, and everything we were seeing, it's, it's, yeah, I, I remember when fire season wasn't a thing when I first moved here. Um, the, fact, yeah. the fact that it is, it's, it's the only time of year I think of ever, ever leaving the Bay Area. Um, right, right. Yeah, and, it's, it's definitely gotten noticeably yeah. worse in the last five years. And so... And I'm obviously the insurance side of that is is a big part as well. And I'm curious, does that play into your guys' calculations around that? Or is that just kind of looking at the, the broader risks overall? We are in the process of getting more insurance information. It's actually been a challenge to find out how much people pay for insurance on every single home. Um, hopefully we'll get some data on that soon. But so far, we just have anecdotes from our agents about customers finding out that they have to pay extra money for fire insurance, almost as much as their mortgage if it's really bad. And that could definitely scare some home buyers out of buying a home. Yeah. Cause I mean, I mean, I'm just, re- I'm just started recently reading a, a book called a disposable city, which is looking at uh climate crisis through the lens of the impacts of Miami. Yeah. 
Nice. Yeah. So you, so you know well. Yeah. And one of the things that I always find fascinating is that moment when the insurance agent companies are going to stop insuring homes. And 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 because that's obviously climate risk, but that also is systemic risk to that entire market, particularly when it's such driven by real estate the way that Miami and so many places are in terms of t- tax bases. Yeah, I know that there are some places in California, I believe it is, that have required insurance providers to provide you insurance uniformly and they, they're not allowed to deny insurance to particular properties. I, I don't think that that's necessarily the right public policy solution, though. I think mm-hmm. that eventually we're going to have to reckon with climate risk and it should be priced in. But at the same time, I do think it's really important to provide as much assistance as possible to the people who bought homes back when there wasn't this risk, or at least it wasn't, it didn't seem like it was going to be, people weren't aware of how bad the risk would really get. I think there does need to be some kind of collective um, action taken to protect those people. But at the same time, I think we should be actively encouraging people through prices to move to places that are going to be better for them long term because they're more climate resilient. Yeah, so basically lo- leveraging the market to in- incentivize the behavior and proper behavior. Yes. But yeah, I mean it's interesting to hear that because it's not not that part because that makes perfect sense to me. But <laughs> the kind of the need for an adaptation fund because it makes me think about the conversations going on at COP at COP twenty six right now and how you've got a lot of the most impacted tend to be marginalized and poor uh, poorer countries. Uh, and global, um, really being like, well, we didn't cause this. Yeah. How, where you guys are supposed to be give, like, where's the, where's the funds for adaptation? And it's like, cause it, for, for us, it's okay. Well, for, for many people in America, it's like, okay, this is something that's problematic for, for people in like, uh, their body. Um, like this is, or the Maldives, like this is an existential crisis. This is extinction right, of, their life, right. of their life as they know it. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a very big economic problem and a political problem. It, you probably are familiar somewhat with political economy. And when I think about like how much coordination has to happen between countries, um, that is a very difficult challenge. But even within the U.S., there's all this coordination that will need to happen between local governments, because if one area, say, um, yeah, one, say Napa Valley, their fire risk increases, well, that's going to, that's going to increase the demand for housing in the surrounding areas that are naturally more resilient. So it's, It would be in everybody's best interest if we built more housing and more resilient areas, but at the same time, maybe existing homeowners in the places that are more resilient would prefer to keep their single family homes and not increase density. So it's it's a really big problem because everybody has their own their own uh, incentives. Yeah, no, and, and as someone who lives uh, just south of Napa County, well, in uh, Marin County, um, I, I get it because uh, <laughs> and and it's it's an ongoing conversation because um, it's I've got the uh, regional housing needs assessments and everything. And I don't even think they're probably accounting for climate crisis as a part of it either. It's yeah, more we're already such a big hole. Yeah. You were already, I think, 3.8 million homes short, according to Freddie Mac, for the country. And I worry that that number is a gross underestimation because we're not taking into account how many homes aren't going to be livable anymore because of climate change. Some homes, like yeah. people, literally won't be able to live in if they just consistently get flooded, and it's not worth it to try to make them more resilient. Some homeowners will have the means to make their homes more resilient by like raising their homes in an area that's flood prone, or clearing brush and putting on a metal roof in an area that's fire prone. But it's the people with the most money who are going to be best able to adapt, and that's true within the United States, and it's true globally. Your company is building 
these denser homes. So hopefully there'll be some technological improvements on the home building side with 3D printing. And I guess I, I, I'm a techno optimist. So I do think that there that we are capable of engineering our way out of 100%. a lot of these problems. <laughs> so that's what I, that's what I keep going back to. It's actually a great lead <laughs> to, my, to my last question. What are a couple things that you see coming down the road that get you really excited and give you hope? It definitely gives me hope that there does seem to be a movement to rethink zoning. I mean, in California, there were those laws recently passed that would essentially eliminate single family zoning. Um, we'll see how well they're implemented. I think there's going to be a lot of local resistance and some local neighborhoods or HOAs will probably do everything they can to to fight that. But at least there's a fight. At least there, <laughs> at least there seems to be a growing number of people on the side of just smarter, more green zoning, more equitable zoning. And I think the more that we we prioritize that, the better off we'll be and the better able we'll be able to face the challenges of something like climate change. Yeah, no, very much agree. I mean, the reason I can have a smile on my face is, is, human, is my belief in human ingenuity. There's yeah. the fact that we as a species, one of our defining traits is an ability to come up with new ways of doing things that change everything. And that frankly we didn't think of before we did it. And it's usually because we did it by mistake. And I've heard a little bit about the 3D printing side for homes. I think if that technology takes off and we're able to actually um, scale building homes and, and bring down the costs, that would certainly help as well. Man, I should have you hosting this. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously incredibly biased and bullish, but I really do uh, share that feeling that I do think 3D printing more than pretty much any other technology that we have right now, or at least that's kind of coming to maturity right now, has a, has that opportunity to solve that dual housing and climate crisis. Um, yeah, it's been such so. a shame that techno that we have. I think that one of the reasons that home prices are so high is because there hasn't been any huge technological breakthrough to bring down the cost of housing. I mean, you can get a computer the size of your iPhone that you know would have powered a rocket ship, but we're still basically have the same technology for building homes, at least right now. So hopefully we do have yeah. some breakthroughs. I do think this next year or two is really going to be really exciting time for, for 3D printing construction. Uh, so it's cool. wonderful to kind of hear, hear you're reflecting back that you see it as, as promising as we do. So, But unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you again, <laughs> Daryl. It's been wonderful to have you. Uh, together Again, today's guest was uh, Daryl Fairweather, Chief Economist for Redfin. Doing some amazing things to make home buying as easy as possible and as make sure that home buyers and home sellers have all the information they need to, to make informed decisions. Thank you so much for taking the time, Darren. Thank you for having me.